0: Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, August 2nd, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. And we give you thanks for lives like barrels who lived out what it meant to follow you. Amen. Amen. In 2009, I made my first trip to the Philippines. I went with a group of pastors from Hawaii. We were guests of the organization Compassion International. Compassion is a wonderful group that is committed to releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. We traveled to the southern island of Mindanao, and our destination, circled in red there, Davao City. After landing at the airport, we were transported to our home base for the week, which was the marco polo hotel it was a five-star establishment now many of us pastors including myself were not used and accustomed to the posh surroundings that we had but the main reason they put us there was because of security you notice it's hard to see but right above the palm trees there's a sign that says police Uh, the island of mindanao for years had been a hotbed of terrorism mainly muslim extremists And the organizers of our trip wanted to make sure that foreigners uh, visiting their beloved country were kept safe in the best way possible. So not only was our bus stopped at the entrance to the driveway of the hotel upon coming in and they looked under it with mirrors and they checked to make sure everything was in order, but every time we entered the building of the hotel... We had to be patted down, hand-searched, even that metal wand, right, to make sure that nobody was bringing in any substances that would uh, be detrimental to the guests, just to keep us safe. Well, this is what Davao City looked like as we were uh, landing at Davao Airport, but this is what it looked like directly across from my room in the Marco Polo Hotel. Poverty is quite extreme in many parts of the Philippines, and many folks live in tin shacks. Or even worse. One of the days we broke up into small groups and we got to visit with one of the local compassion kids in their home. And this is Robin uh, Abapo. At the time that I met her, she was 17 years old. She had been a compassion child since the first grade. And this is her neighborhood. It's located in an extremely poor part of Davao City, known as a squatter's camp. Thousands of families live in this neighborhood, and small dwellings are built next to, in between, and on top of others, living there out of necessity, often without permission. From time to time, we were told that the landowners would come and then bulldoze the lean-tos and the shacks that were there without warning because it was their property. Well, we had to wind our way through a series of twists and turns to get back to where Robin Rabalin and her family lived, we even passed a family that was roasting a couple of pigs. They were using this as a source of income. They would cook it, and then they would uh, sell it to neighbors in the community for a profit. And when we finally made it to the Abapo's entrance, we were told to keep our shoes on. Now, in Hawaii, one of the things you do whenever you go to someone's house is you take off your shoes. It's just a matter of respect. But here in the Philippines, even though they do that a lot, they said, no, in this area, keep your shoes on because uh, during the monsoon season, their house regularly flooded and they just had mud floors. Uh, So it got to be very difficult to walk in. Well, Radalyn lived with her father, uh, Dujoso, a fish vendor, with her Auntie Lagaya, her father's sister, and then three brothers. And this is the main room in their house. And it's not much bigger than what you see in this picture here. They also had two smaller rooms above them, plus a makeshift kitchen and a communal toilet that was outside. Unfortunately, Rodalyn's mother no longer was alive. She had died three years prior, uh, succumbing to colon cancer. Well, despite the challenge of living in one of the most dangerous places on the planet, Rodalyn had a tremendous spirit about her. In fact, her whole family did. Their strong faith in Christ Jesus uh, fueled them forward And even if they didn't know whether their house would still be standing the next day, they had this amazing spirit. And so the Abapo family and others in our community taught me that there can be great joy even in the most dangerous of places. Welcome to the third week in our current sermon series entitled, Grace, Jesus' Amazing Parables. And parables are simple stories that convey a deep meaning. And Jesus told lots of parables. Parables. We're looking at parables that center around one of God's favorite ways of working and is that that's through grace. Grace is God's unmerited love, favor, and blessing in our lives. It's nothing we deserve or earn. It simply comes from God's infinite storehouse of mercy. So, the setting for today's parable was probably just as dangerous, if not more so, than living in Davao City in the Philippines. The 17-mile road descending from Jerusalem to Jericho has been treacherous throughout its entire history. Uh, With a vertical descent of 3,300 feet, close to three-fifths of a mile, travelers must navigate around the perilous steep ravines and the bare shoulders of rock. It's the perfect hiding spot for hardened criminals lying in wait. In fact, for that very reason, this road had a nickname. It was called the Way of Blood. And this is where Jesus sets the parable uh, that we had read for us today, from Luke 10, starting at verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the people that first heard Jesus tell this parable, they would have known from the very beginning where this story was going. As soon as Jesus mentioned the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, they'd be like, oh, no, that's trouble, man. You don't want to go there by yourself ever. Everyone knew that getting robbed, robbed, mugged, beat up, and even killed had been tradition for the beginning of that road. Now, we know the road, but we don't know much about the man who was traveling on it. Was he wealthy? Jesus doesn't say. Did the bandits target him because of his resources and abscond with a, with a sack full of coin? Jesus doesn't say. Was it a premeditated attack? Were they targeting this one specific individual? Or was it just an act of random senseless violence? Jesus doesn't say. We only know that by the end of verse 30, this unidentified man has been beaten up pretty severely and stripped of his clothes. And he's hanging on to life by the thinnest of threads. Kenneth Bailey, in his wonderful book, Through Peasant Eyes, mentions that in the Middle East, you're able to identify strangers from usually two ways. First, by their speech. In first century Palestine, there were so many ethnic and religious groups that used a variety of different language and dialects that just by hearing someone talk, you could probably make out, even if you didn't understand it, you knew where they were from just by how they spoke. Kind of like how... um, We can tell if someone's from Boston or New York City or from Minnesota, don't you know, or wherever it is, the deep south, just by the words they use and how they say it. But this guy was so beat up, almost to the point of death, he wasn't going to be talking anytime soon. So they couldn't tell where he was from by that method. The second way that they identified strangers, if you couldn't tell by how they spoke, it was how they dressed, the clothes that they wear, how they wore their clothes. That would tell you where they were from. Kind of like, you know I'm from Hawaii because every time you see me, I'm wearing an Aloha shirt, right? That's just how I roll and I'm excited that I get to be in a place that accepts me as I am, right? But this guy, what was he wearing at this point? Nothing, Right? He had been stripped naked, so no identification from where he was from either, which sets the stage for verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, Bailey makes a few comments about priests that are helpful for us to better understand the situation. He said, the first thing we need to know is that a large number of priests lived in Jericho and traveled to Jerusalem to do their work in the temple. There were so many priests in Jerusalem, or in Israel at that time, that uh, your job wasn't just to stay in the temple. There were so many priests, they put you on uh, groups, sort of like priest teams. And out of 52 weeks a year, your team would only come twice. Twice, two two one-week segments. So many priests would be traveling from Jerusalem back down to Jericho after they had finished their one week of service. So the chances are that's what this priest was doing. He had finished his service in the temple and was on his way back. Now, second, there's no doubt that the priest would be riding. No one with any status in the Middle East would take a 17-mile trek on foot unless uh, they had to. So this priest would probably be riding a horse or a donkey. The third thing we need to know is that according to the written law in Scripture, Contact with a corpse was one of the five listed actions that led to spiritual defilement. Now, the priest couldn't tell if this guy was dead or alive, so he had to assume that the dead part was a fair... I mean, he could have easily been dead. So always err on the side of caution, right? Now, the oral law, the Jewish tradition uh, that the rabbis had passed down, there were four more actions that made someone spiritually unclean. And the first was contact with a non-Jew. So it could be a dead body. It could be a non-Jew. Those are two reasons why the priest should avoid it. Now, there was, he was so uh, beaten and, and stripped bare that there was no way in knowing who this guy was. And even though the law in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, said that loving your neighbor was very important, laws of defilement were unconditional for priests. So Bailey says, technically, the priest had a legal right to pass on by because he was caught between the the ethical and the theological rule book of his calling. We don't know why he passed by, but those are some pretty good reasons that he may have done so. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Levites are like uh, part of the worship team. You know, they're the ones from setting up communion to playing in the band to making sure that all the elements were need that were there for the worship service. Those were the Levites. They assisted the priests and they were there in worship. They helped with offerings and with sacrifices. But uh, the restrictions that were made for priests were not as strong for Levites. So a Levite could have rendered aid, and if the man were dead or if he died while he was caring for him, uh, the repercussions of touching a dead body would not as severe as it would have been. a priest. Levites were also of a lower social class, so he may not have been riding, could very well have been walking. And so he maybe not have been able to carry the person to safety, but he could have rendered some minimal aid and at least taken care of his immediate wounds. But for whatever reason, Jesus says that person also walked walked on by. So if we're keeping uh, score at home, we now have two religious leaders, two opportunities for service. Two passers by. Now, Jesus' original hearers would have known what was coming, right? If you've listened to any stories long enough, you can start to predict how they're going to end. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know what's going to happen now. So the two religious guys, the people that make their living representing God, just blew them off and walked by. So now Jesus is going to tell us that just a regular guy, an ordinary Jew comes by, and he's going to be the one that takes care of him. Man, Jesus, your stories can be so predictable sometimes. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And this is where the early hearers are like, okay, Jesus, never saw that coming. Maybe you aren't as predictable as we thought, right? Now, a word about Samaritans and then about his actions. Samaritans were regarded by all Jews as unclean people. They originally were part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but when the Assyrians uh, came into uh, to take over in the northern kingdom, what one of the ways that they made sure that there were no uprising is they took many of the Jewish people um, from the northern kingdom away and then brought in people that they had conquered from other regions so that it kind of diluted everything. And then over time, the Jews that remained there would have intermarried with other people, other cultures, other religious backgrounds, and many of the Jewish people from outside that area of Samaria thought they incorporated other religious practices, thereby diluted and, dare we say, polluted the faith that they had been raised with. But there's more than just being a people that they didn't like. Uh, Ken Geyer tells us that Jews never welcomed Samaritans into your home. If you brought a Samaritan in your home, they believed that you were storing up curses upon your children. And uh, the Mishnah, the part of the Jewish oral law, stated that eating with a Samaritan, even having a meal with one, was the same thing as eating pork. And how high on the list of favorite foods is pork for Jews? Not at all. That's that's forbidden. And then to top things off, there was a prayer that was prayed regularly in synagogue that asked that God would uh, have eternal, uh, that, that God would exclude Samaritans from eternal life. That was part of the prayer on their Friday night worship. So there's nothing like, you know, when you finish a a really intimate prayer service and then you ask God for eternal damnation on all your enemies. That just kind of wraps it up with a bow and makes everyone walk away feeling good about themselves, right? All of that is missed on us today because we don't have that same connection with the Samaritans. We've come to equate the word good with Samaritan, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus told a parable about Samaritan. Oh, the good Samaritan, right? It goes hand in hand. But in Jesus' day, they never would have put those two words together. Never. So, once again, Jesus painfully exposes his audience's biases, prejudices, and hatreds and lifts it all up in light of God's kingdom to reexamine just how we feel and think. I once heard a pastor say that if we want to get the social impact of the Samaritan stopping to help in the parable, she said it'd be like saying that Jerry Falwell stopped to help a beat-up lesbian Democrat. That's how crazy this story was for the original hearers. Nobody could possibly imagine such a thing happening. By the way, the only other place where the phrase moved with pity occurs in all of Luke's gospel is in chapter 7 when Jesus comes upon a widow who's lost her only son and it says that Jesus was moved with pity. Coincidence? This Samaritan and Jesus being moved with pity? Let's keep that in the back of our minds. We'll come back to that. Verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you for whatever more you spend. Now, finally, we get to some verbs that we can be excited about, right? Went, bandaged, poured, put, brought, took care, took out, gave, said, come back, will repay. These are great action words. None of this raw, beat up, left, passed by that we had before. And to top things off, who is it that's doing all these great things? The Samaritan. That's right. Now, for all he knew, this could have been a trap. It wouldn't have been the first time that someone pretended to be injured so that uh, so some unsuspecting, good-hearted person would stop down and help. And then while their back is turned, the buddies would come and jump them and rob them. And it's a great setup. Nevertheless, the Samaritan stops to render aid. Now, what does he do specifically? Bandages the wounds. That would, of course, stop bleeding, would prevent future infection. Pouring wine on a wound would cleanse it. Adding oil would keep it soft, which helped the wound heal faster. But in addition to this, oil and wine were also sacrificial elements that were used in the temple during worship. A priest and a Levite have already walked by, but no, it's the Samaritan that brings the elements of worship into play. Could it be that this was more than simply first aid? That Jesus uses the word to pour, which was also used in worship settings as to pour out a sacrifice? So maybe this was more of a holy moment between the Samaritan and this man than we realize. Now, it says jesus says that he put him on his own animal that may indicate that he was traveling with more than one animal perhaps he was a uh a a, someone that sold merchandise and he had a bunch of goods that he was bringing from jerusalem down to jericho and he had a, a donkey or a horse that was packing that and he had his own that he was riding and so he chose his own animal to put this beat-up man on and to take him to safety. Without even knowing any of the religious, the ethnic, the other identifying features of this beat-up man, the Samaritan moves into action. And he doesn't just dump him on the doorstep of a Motel 6 either. No, it says that he he took care of him that night, which meant he stayed there in the room. He made sure that he had whatever it was he needed. And then the next day, he gives the innkeeper two coins, two denarii, two days pay to cover the rehab for this guy because remember he's got nothing, right? Everything's been taken from him. Two denarii would have would have been about 2 to 3 weeks of room and board at a hotel. And he says, "I'm going to come back through and whatever else he has rung up on a bill, I will take care of it." This was quite a tremendous sacrifice that this Samaritan made. And we say The Academy Award for Best Actor in a Dramatic Role has to go to the Samaritan, right? This is one of Jesus' classic parables, right? Everyone knows the parable of the Good Samaritan. But there's one part of the story that we read for you that we haven't heard yet. Do you remember what that was? That was why Jesus told the parable in the first place. For that, we have to go back to verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a great question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the kind of question that people have been asking for centuries. This is a big picture question, right? How do we get into heaven? Now, for starters, we shouldn't be too quick to jump to Jesus' response. Let's spend a little time with this question first. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer asked Jesus. Now, the last time I checked, the laws could have changed last night, but the last time I checked, in order to get an inheritance, something has to happen first, right? Somebody has to die. That's the only way you get an inheritance. Otherwise, it's a gift that's given when someone's alive. But to get an inheritance, somebody has to die. As followers of Jesus, we believe that the only way to inherit eternal life is is through God's gracious gift through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, right? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So there's no amount of doing that gets us this inheritance. It's all about believing in Jesus and receiving the gift of God's grace, the gift of life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> nothing. We do Nothing. It's all grace. We believe and we receive. It's God's free and unmerited love and favor and blessing. So he asked Jesus this question, and then in a classic sort of uh, rabbinical teacher mode, Jesus responds by asking a question to him. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer here links two foundational passages from the Hebrew scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. And I'd say it's a pretty good answer by the lawyer because later in the gospel when someone asked Jesus what's the most important uh, passage in all the Bible, he says the same thing. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Now notice Jesus doesn't say do this and you will inherit eternal life or do this and you'll get into heaven. He simply says do this and you will live. Sometimes I think that we think we know what it is that we want or need either now or down the road and we take it to God and we ask for it and we and we plead for it and sometimes we fast and we pray, but God doesn't always give us what we ask for because sometimes God gives us What we need instead, right here and right now. And if we want to truly live, then we need to love God with everything we have and those around us. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Just how many people do I got to share the bag of Skittles with because it's just one serving, you know? Now we get to the heart of the matter. It wasn't really about being genuinely concerned with the big picture of eternal life. The lawyer was interested in himself. He wanted to make sure that he was living right, that he was being faithful. He wanted to make sure that he was one that God would acknowledge and smile upon it and eventually welcome into eternity. And we can't blame him, right? We've all been there. We've often similarly focused on what we believe we're supposed to be doing in this life. How are we supposed to live? But it says he wanted to justify himself. Now, like it or not, I venture this is where most of us connect to this story, that, that we want to justify himself, ourselves. We want to be good people. We want to do the right things and follow the Bible and lead respectable lives. And, and that's how many of us were raised, right? Our parents and our grandparents taught us, this is what you need to do. This is what it means to be a good person. And I don't say that in an, in an uh, egotistical, overly selfish way either. But if that's what we're focused on, then it goes back to holding on to the bookkeeping from last week's sermon of the parable of the unforgiving servant. The theologian uh, of, from Switzerland, Karl Barth, says this, the lawyer does not know that only by mercy can he live and inherit eternal life. He doesn't want to live by mercy. He doesn't even know what it is. He actually lives by something quite different from mercy by his own intention and ability to present himself as a righteous man before God. Now, I don't know about you, but this is where the rubber hits the road for me. I often want to present myself as one who is doing what God wants. Now, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I'd say I'm mostly good, right? And I try to live a life that's mostly good. And yet, by trusting in my mostly goodness, I miss out on the amazing gift of grace that God offers to me. What must we do to inherit eternal life, we ask Jesus? <laughs> do, the parable says, we don't do anything. We receive grace from God, grace that recognizes that try as we might, we still get beat up and bruised in this life. And we're reminded this parable is not about staying out of trouble and being good, respectable Christians. No, it's about recognizing that life throws all kinds of curveballs to us, and we get injured and wounded, but there is one who comes to us on the roadside, one who bandages our wounds and pours oil to cleanse us and carries us home and gives us his life and pays for our debts with his own currency, his body, and forgives any future debts we may have. Because salvation comes in the form of a costly demonstration of love. That's Jesus. Costly demonstration of love. Could it be that the parable of the Good Samaritan really is about Jesus? That by using someone from the one group that most Jews couldn't even imagine God would care about, he opens all of our eyes to just how big God's kingdom really is. Now... Eternal life isn't about doing anything. The question is, how can we not reciprocate the grace that we've been given? The Middle East has always been a region of turmoil and struggle. In July of 2013, President uh, Mohamed Morsi of Egypt was ousted as the leader of that nation. What followed was a series of attacks uh, by the Muslim Brotherhood on Christians and churches all throughout Egypt. A tremendous amount of scapegoating was being projected onto neighboring Christians because of what was happening in the socio-political environment at that time. In August of 2013, Reverend James Martin, a Jesuit priest, posted this tweet on his Twitter account. It showed 20 Muslim men holding hands outside a Catholic church in Egypt, protecting it from vandalism and attacks during a Catholic mass. Now, as you imagine... The post went viral right why because everyone knows that all muslims are terrorists right well not these 20 at least not on this day could it be that the parable of the good samaritan still has something to teach us about the world in which we live in today about the way the kingdom of god operates and as a clue to how god calls us to respond to the gifts of grace that we have been given. When he finished the parable, Jesus said this to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said, go and do likewise. Grace is a gift, friends. It is nothing that we earn. We can't do anything to receive it. The question is, how will we respond to what we've already been given? And how might we recognize agents of God's grace, even in the most unlikeliness of people? May we go and do likewise. Amen.